looks like we're going to be hanging out inside for at least a little while longer. And with the colder months coming up fast, there's never been a more perfect time to stock up on all your comfy clothes. Lucky for you, you listen to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, and I have a sweet deal for you today. Check out my sponsor, Pair of Thieves. They've got everything you need, from shorts to lounge pants to underwear and bras. They even have a line of Disney socks with all your favorite characters on it. But here's the best part. If you use the link in the show notes or on my podcast website and the discount code RakutenThieves, don't worry, that's in the show notes too, you'll get 20% off every full price item in your shopping cart. So stock up on all your comfy clothes today and help out the podcast in the process. But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. This is episode 32. 32. Catching up to my age. (laughs) We have a very fun episode today. The interview is with Kellen Rusiniello, who is with Drug Policy Alliance. I promised this one back in July. Amazing. It is September when I'm putting this out. We recorded this in July, end of July. Kellen was so kind to come on the podcast after we did the fundraiser for Drug Policy Alliance that netted around $12,000. And in discussions with their team, I said, you know, I really would love to bring somebody on to show my listeners where their money is going. And that is this episode. So Kellen will talk a lot about Drug Policy Alliance's work. And also, as I always do whenever I have somebody who is very learned uh, about the issues of drug policy on the show, we'll talk about the racist history of our country's drug policies and how those are still impacting our country today. The shout out is from Erin Henson, who's a good friend of mine. She is very inspiring, and I think you're going to truly enjoy what she has to say. I'm going to keep this intro short today. The interview is uh, truly one you're not going to want to miss. So enjoy that. As always, please keep reaching out. All the links are in the show notes. A new sponsor again today. It's been a great couple of weeks with that. That's also in the show notes, and you'll hear more about that later. Thank you to those who keep filling out the podcast survey. A couple more weeks on that. As a reminder, anyone who fills out the podcast survey will be entered to win a prize drawing. Uh, That'll be drawn at the end of the month, so please keep filling that out. Check out the link to the Patreon, again, in the show notes, or just go to Patreon, Choose Your Struggle. As with anything else, it's Choose Your Struggle. And uh, check out all of my awesome sponsors. All that is in the show notes. That's pretty much it. That's all I got for you today. You'll hear me at the end of the show. Enjoy this episode. Grounded is so interesting of a term because uh, I love being outside. Um, and so as long as I'm outside, I really, really feel that um, that sense of grounding. But um, I've been through a significant trans- transition in the past, um, I guess, year and a half. 
Um, I was married and came to the realization that it was not something that was fulfilling to me. Um, and as I kind of came to this realization, um, what it really became was a conversation of who am I? Um, and I was, I'll say asking everyone else <laughs> what I should be doing. Um, and so I've been reading this book by um, Glennon Doyle um, called Untamed. And she talks about listening to your knowing. And that really when you're going through a transition um, or you're kind of servicing doubt and all of this is bubbling, um, for me to be going to someone else to ask the question about what should I be doing in my life is kind of crazy, right? They're not me. Um, they don't have my personality. They don't have my thoughts and feelings and they're not going through the same situation. So um, it's really about listening to yourself. I was in the relationship for six years and looking back on it now, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm 26 years old, but um, it feels like a lifetime, right? It's felt like it took way too long. Um, but at the same time, I think everyone kind of comes to their grown up phase in, in a different way. And I was, you know, 18 when the relationship started. And um, I hear that your mind doesn't really stop growing till 25. And so it all kind of makes sense. I turned 25 and changed my life. There's nothing that's going to happen that's going to make it easier. It's not like that decision is going to hit you in the face or it's going to, you know, make the decision for you. It's just not, um, you know, an object of motion kind of stays in motion until acted upon by an outside force. But you, nothing was nothing is going to change unless you make that change happen. And just to think about... Um, there's uh, Stephen Covey is a leadership person, but he says, begin with the end in mind. And I think if you can picture a better version of yourself by listening to yourself, realize that there's going to be pain and there's going to be tears and there's going to be moments where you just have absolutely no idea what you're doing. And if you've made the wrong decision, you're just going to be second doubting yourself all the time. But um, you're going to be stronger and you're going to be more authentically you. And I think getting to that piece of being authentic is in my mind, how to find fulfillment. I know that if I am, I'm hyper as hell. Like I know that. Um, but when I find myself getting like all sheepish or um, being super quiet in all these situations, I'm like, what am I doing? Um, and, but when I'm super excited and I'm out there living and exploring, I, I feel like me. And I think, um, when you're making that decision, just what feels like you, and it's not what someone else thinks you are, who else, you know, you think you should be, it's who are you and who do you want to be? There was a lot going wrong. And I, I tell people this all the time, you know, I don't, um, think that my ex-husband is a terrible person. Um, I think that we brought out the worst in each other. Um, and I think that we were just very, very wrong for each other. And I, I really do blame myself for kind of, um, staying there and not listening to myself, but, um, a lot had happened and I had been having these doubting, doubting thoughts for a long time. And honestly, I started having very, very suicidal thoughts. Um, and I guess I was in, um, God, I don't want to know where, but anyway, I was on this high location looking down, just being like, okay, like this is my out. Um, and it was kind of at that moment that I was like, fuck, like it doesn't have to be my out. If it's my option of staying in this marriage or, you know, leaving this world, I'm going to leave my marriage. Um, and so that was kind of the moment where I was like, no, like I'm, I am more important than this marriage is. Um, and so it was, that was kind of the moment I chose me. Um, and once I chose me, it was no going back. Absolutely never. Do you have an Instagram for your baking? Oh my God, I do. I haven't ever announced this. Okay. It's called wild and G free.
uh, wild because you've got to embrace your wild side. Uh, and then and and then the G is very small, but it's um, so wild and free. But the G is for gluten free. There's very little better than waking up in the morning to a truly fantastic cup of coffee. And if you're like me, you're looking for something that tastes fresh and isn't weak or overproduced. That's why I've switched to Four Sigmatic and I won't go back. Four Sigmatic mixes their beans with mushrooms to give your brain that jumpstart you didn't know you needed. So go to the link in my show notes or on my podcast page and use the code CHOOSEYOURSTRUGGLE at checkout for 10% off. You can sign up for one of their awesome subscriptions or just try buying a bag. And with their 100% money bag guarantee, there's no downside. So check them out today and don't forget the code Choose Your Struggle. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. My name is Kellen Rusiniello. I'm a senior staff attorney with the Drug Policy Alliance. So for my listeners, you know the name Drug Policy Alliance. You probably know them anyways, but you definitely know that name because I did the fundraiser for them and that's how I got connected to Kellen. We raised uh, in, in about a little under a month, we raised almost $12,000, which is awesome. Great job, everybody. And that work is, is you know why we're here today, why I wanna hear from Kellen about all the amazing stuff DPA is doing. But before we get to that, I would like to hear a little bit more about your story, Kellen. I guess it starts when I was in college. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was kind of bouncing all around, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then so I had some uh, personal experiences that actually brought me to drug policy reform. He's still my best friend, my best friend at the time, still my best friend today. His father um, was addicted to heroin, primarily heroin, but also some other substances. You know, During that time, I spent a lot of time with my friend and his dad. Um, and just really watched how his life deteriorated because of because of his use, and um, it just really got me thinking about why, you know, what was going on, why no one was helping him. It eventually got to the point where he both stole from me and his son, and um, and disappeared essentially. Um, and I just, I you know, I just really got interested in it, and so I actually started taking classes in college about. Um, you know, drug pharmacology and treatment and that sort of thing. And the more I learned about it, the more I researched, the more I learned, um, you know, I realized how fucked up the system is and how it's essentially designed to harm people instead of help people. Um, and that really got me, set me on the path to where I am today. Um, I, I found the quickest path to get my degree and get out of college and went straight to law school. Um, and then I started working in uh, the field of drug policy reform and criminal justice reform. I, my first position out of law school was working with the ACLU, American Civil Liberty Un Liberties Union down in San Diego. And then I came to Drug Policy Alliance earlier this year, and um, I'm working with them on a whole bunch of different policy uh, issues, um, but primarily um, focused on, again, health for people who use drugs and making sure that they have access to the services that they need um, instead of relying on the criminal justice system to essentially continue to harm them. Well, thank you for, for telling your story. I uh, feel for, for your buddy, for his dad and for you, I mean, this whole, that whole situation. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, luckily, luckily, it has a happy ending. Um, I mean, essentially, eventually, he got hooked up with a methadone program, um, and uh, and essentially stabilized his life, and he's back on track. Owns his own electrician business now. So, it's amazing what happens when you actually get people the resources that they need. Well, that is a happy ending. It's also it's uh, really terrible that the answer was something that should be available to everybody from day one, right. and and isn't. And that is not just methadone, but all forms of harm reduction and and, and treatment in that respect. Um, and and that's something we could do multiple hours on just that that topic. Right. Um, but but and, and and I do want to touch on some of that. But before we do, as you and I were talking about right before we started here. When, when we look at national headlines and we see things like people fighting to to get you know things like marijuana legalized, um, cannabis research, medical marijuana, it's easy to think, oh, good progress. And in reality, that is not only the tip of the, the iceberg, but we're really just getting to what should be baseline. Can you talk about some things that may be happening behind the scenes that the average person isn't aware of as far as the progress that we all want to see around these issues? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, I, you know, I think you're right. A lot of this work has been going on for decades um, and people have been pushing for things that should have been there all along. You know, you think about syringe access and naloxone, um, the overdose reversal drug, opioid overdose reversal drug. You know, those have been around for decades. The, but there are still several states, I think it's like 20 states that don't allow syringe exchange programs. Um, but there is a lot of work going on underneath the scenes. Um, you know, we are, we are working tirelessly um, with legislators to try and get policies enacted that are going to provide, you know, the resources that people who use drugs need. For example, you know, one exciting thing that's coming up is um, Oregon is going to vote in November. It's going to be the first state to vote on initiative on whether to decriminalize simple possession of all drugs. So, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. California has a bill right now that would um, authorize safe consumption sites, um, places where people can go and use drugs under the supervision of health professionals so that they, if they do overdose, that it can be responded to. Which is huge. And so I'm sorry to interrupt on that one, but this is, that one for me is like number one. I think that all the other things are incredibly important and I carry my Narcan everywhere I go. I've been working with uh, some syringe exchange people down here, but the, the safe, the safe consumption sites are so big because it's such an easy concept to wrap your head around if you can get away from the ideas that have been shoved down our throat about what drugs and drug users are. And if you see it as a health condition or a health uh topic why shouldn't we i like it, it just make it 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 frustrates me and it angers me that we don't already have this and so to hear that we are making some progress in another place not just the philadelphia uh incident is incredibly exciting yeah i think that's you know one of the new sort of frontiers in harm reduction they've figured this out in other countries um and the all the research is positive right um, so it's time for us to catch up. Yeah, I actually had last night, I was talking to my sister-in-law who who lives in New York, and uh, I mentioned, my wife and I are, are we're, we're talking about Philadelphia, and I mentioned what happened there. And she was like, it, is that a thing? Is that even a thing on the table? I was like, in multiple other countries, this is a thing that already exists. Mm -hmm. We are just very slow. And it's it's that puritanic and puritanical, you know, thinking that we have about a lot of things, but especially drug use. Right. 
with stuff like that, and for listeners, I've talked about this, the Philadelphia incident a lot, but essentially it, the, the, the government was okay with it. Not okay, but they were behind it. And then the people were the ones that, that protested and sort of had was, was the final reason why it was pulled. My question on that to you, I guess, would be, you guys can do all this amazing work and it is absolutely incredible. How much of this is on groups like y'all in the government to, to pass these? And how much is on us as people to change our thinking? Because like, like in Philadelphia, you guys can do all this amazing work. And at the end of the day, it was the neighbors who said, we don't want that here. Yeah, I, I mean, it's everybody. Um, everybody has to be on board. Um, there should have been a lot more work to bring the community on board with the policy. Um, you know, you can change a policy without changing hearts and minds. Really, what we need to do is change the hearts and minds, because if you change the policy without changing the hearts and minds, you can end up with a great policy on the books and no implementation or implementation in a manner that could actually cause other types of harms. So it's really, um, it, they have to work in tandem. You know, we have to have the community on board. We have to implement it in a way that the community is going to be happy with. I think that's totally possible with safe consumption sites. Many people are just concerned about open drug use and, you know, syringe litter, that type of thing, crime associated with it. But again, all of the research is showing that those things get better. Um, so if you work with the community to come along with you, we can get there. So a couple of questions stem off of that. And the first, I love the, I, the idea of hearts and minds is incredibly important. And that's a part of my background was in community organizing. It, how do you, it, it's one thing to try to change hearts and minds on an issue that people don't feel strongly about because a lot of it's just education and, and helping them see it. And education obviously on this topic is incredibly huge. I don't want to minimize that, but when there's so much stigma already existing, you're not just educating, you are basically clearing everything that was there before and then educating on top of that, which is a really hard thing to do. How, with something like drug use and drugs, period, how do we go about changing the hearts and minds when people almost don't even realize that they are so, they've, they've bought into that stigma so heavily? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and and I think people have been working on this for a long time. Generally, people respond more emotionally to anything than they do with logic. And I think that is 10 times more true when we're talking about drugs. So what we really have to be cognizant of doing is combining any of the research log logical arguments that can only take us so far with the emotional story-based uh, arguments so that people are actually realizing, you know, realizing one, that they do have that stigma. I think some people are so far down that hole that they, they can't even realize that they have that. Uh, but two, just really putting a person's face on it. Um, it's hard for people to, to look a person in the face and tell them, I'm going to harm you. But if it's couched in this language of policy and what about the children and all those things, it's much easier. So we really need to do a, a better job of combining the logical with the emotional and speaking to, the, to what people are really holding on to inside their hearts. Um, there's actually some, some interesting research that came out um, that, was, that essentially um, validated this and said that when you combine an argument of logic with the emotional and storytelling component, people come around and tend to support safe consumption sites. So 
okay, this is gonna be a very self-serving question. But I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm a guy in long-term recovery, right? 10 years. And, and I started this podcast for the goal of trying to break down some stigma around these topics of telling my story of getting other people to tell theirs and, and more normalizing stories around struggle about, you know, uh, substance misuse about mental health. Are you saying that the way that we can make real progress is to continue to tell our stories? Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, this is true in policy all around, but I think especially in, pol- in drug policy is um, the people, the, the voices of the people who are most affected are not heard. Um, and they're the ones who can often give us the best way out. So I think, um, yes, in terms of one, developing the policy that we need, but two, changing the hearts and minds of people. Yes, it is crucial that we involve the, the voices of people who use drugs. That's awesome, man. I love it. Uh, again, it was a very <laughs> self-serving question, but but I think it's important to say anyways. So uh, last one on that topic, you know, I like I said, I use this platform 100% for that. But what are some other ways that people, you know, who don't have this platform or, or, or are just a, a person who doesn't know where to turn? I mean, how can we get these stories out there? How can people... Uh, and I don't mean overcoming the stigma in, in themselves, because that took me five years to do, and I now do this for a living five years later. But I just mean, if you're there, if you're ready to to do this, where where can they go? Where can people tell their stories? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we would encourage people to um, reach out to Drug Policy Alliance. Um, and you can go to our website at drugpolicy.org. Uh, um, or, or you can, you know, reach us on social media, Drug Policy Org, uh, on Twitter. But it's really, you know, I think you know, we would be happy to work with you to get your story told. But you, um, you have a bunch of people in your life who, who need to hear your story. So, you know, share it with the people that you love. Share it with the people around you. And the more that you share it, the more comfortable you become with it. And, and the more understanding the people around you will become. They might also start sharing your story if they have your permission. So, um, you know, it's really just about once you get to that level of comfort, sharing it as much as you can in any form that's available to you. I love that. I, I on every episode, I, I give the message of reach out. And, and it's to me, it's to usually to my guests, it's to people in your life, because I lived that for five years when I was in recovery, I didn't tell anyone because I saw it as a mark of shame. And now like, I'm angry at myself for that. You know what I mean? Because I sat on that for five years thinking I was this big failure. And that was all things I internalized. No one had ever told me that no one had said to me, you are a failure for struggling with substances. It was the me internalizing it from the world around me. And that is incredibly harmful and it's flat out false, but, but it was what lived in my head. So I love those messages of, of reach out and tell people. Right. Yeah. And you know, I've been to several, you know, city, city council meetings, board of supervisors meetings, and always the most powerful, you know, testimony is the person who's been directly impacted telling the policymaker how this is harming them. It's, it's, I mean, we need more of it. So let's, I don't want to go real deep. We, you and I could probably talk history of, of awful drug laws for, for a while. It's something that I'm super passionate about. I also think it's really interesting um, in, in a terms of, of almost like how, if you love the topic of conspiracy theories, these are real. These are very real things that, that affected, you know, 100 years later, what's happening in our country, going back to sort of the, um, uh, you know, anti-Asian laws of, of the 1910s that were uh, massed in drug laws. But 
the one that people love to focus on has sort of a really interesting background. And, and, and I know you are a big policy guy. Can we talk a little bit about the, the, the 70s law between powdered cocaine and crack cocaine for a minute? Because that's a big one that most people know, but they don't think a lot of people know just how deep that, that one law went to, to a lot of what's happening today. Yeah. Um, I mean, so like you've mentioned, since its inception, the, the war on drugs has been based in race. So it's essentially been used as a tool for law enforcement to control and incarcerate communities of color. Um, and so when, you know, fast forwarding to the 1970s, um, we're getting to the, and you know, the official proclamation of the war on drugs. Yeah, actually, before we, we fully get into that, let me ask you, that's a really important thing to note. People say end the war on drugs and they reference the 70s when Nixon kicked off the official war on drugs. Why don't we get, before we get into what I asked before, why don't we get more notice on the like 50, 60 years of solid war on drugs that happened before the official declaration? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, the, uh, the first drug laws go back to early 1900s. Um, so, and, and those were very explicitly based in, in race. I, I think maybe the reason that it doesn't, that we generally don't go back that far, um, is there were still some policies that were kind of wavering between, um, you know, harsh drug penalties and, well, maybe we should actually provide services for people. Now, when I say that, I think w what actually happened was we wanted policies that were nice when it applied to white people and we wanted policies that were harsh when they applied to people of color. Um, but there was still this kind of, there were some policies that were seen as more treatment focused. Um, you know, you can go to the 1930s when we start getting into reefer madness and all of this stuff, um, again, explicitly based in terms of race, explicitly racist. It's, it's pretty amazing how, how much came out of that. But again, you know, when people, as you mentioned, when people talk about the war on drugs, they're really talking about 1970s uh, when the Nixon administration actually, I think, first terms it as a war on drugs or the drug war. And I think maybe that's why this is the first time that terminology was used. It's also the first um, time that real federal money was going into law enforcement. Um, and, and we had a strategy that specifically put more money into law enforcement supply side interventions than we did uh, demand uh, and treatment side. In a very militaristic way, which we are still seeing the repercussions of as these protests go around, on the, around the country, people wonder, I mean, I've seen headlines of like, how did police get all of this gear? Well, this is why it goes back to these. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, in a very specific instance of that and um, is very apropos to today is uh, the, the killing of Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, this, the no-knock warrant, which is essentially police uh, get a warrant and they don't need to knock on your door. They just bash the door and then come in guns blazing. And that, that's what led to the death of Breonna Taylor. Uh, that's a direct outgrowth of war on drugs uh, mentality, you know, that the community is an enemy um, and we need to use war tactics against them. Which is just, it's, it's like when you make the explicit connection that way, that the original goal of that law was to treat drug users as enemy combatants, it is absolutely, it's terrifying and it is just 
it's so sad. It's like, it's sad in a way that like you, I'm struggling to, to right. you know? Yes. So, so anyway, so all of that horribleness, we get to the official declaration of a war against drug in the 70s. And, and we eventually get to one is the biggest, the one that most people know, the disparity between right. powdered cocaine and crack cocaine. Right. Um, so uh, if people don't know, crack and cocaine are the same thing. Crack is essentially just a distilled form of, of cocaine powder. Um, and, and it's made into a smokable form. So we're talking about the same drug, even though they're called two different things. The reason that there is this disparity, um, to be blunt, is that crack is more heavily associated with uh, black people who use the drug, and powder is more associated with white people who use the drug. So this law was passed that essentially gave, punished people who were convicted of offenses involving crack cocaine a hundred times more harsh um, than people who were convicted of offenses involving powder cocaine. And I think the outcome of that is pretty obvious. Black communities were essentially torn apart. People were sent to prison for decades, essentially. Um, for often sometimes for very, very small amounts of, of, of the drug. So, uh, you know, there was, there was action, uh, I guess it was probably almost a decade ago now, to, um, uh, I think it was 2012, um, that would, um, that reduced the disparity. But it's still not equal. There is still federal law that says crack cocaine is, needs to be punished more harshly than powder cocaine, and we still see the racial disparities playing out today. I'm like clenching my teeth as we talk about this. So before we continue on that, if, I'm going to pause and give my listeners another chance to hear where they can find you, follow whatever whatever you would like to, to shout yeah, out. Yeah, so uh, Drug Policy Alliance, our website is drugpolicy.org. You can find us on social media. Our Twitter account is at drugpolicyorg. Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Made. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, nothing tops strain-specific flour. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD. I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flour inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff and let's get back to the episode. So that law or that that policy happens in the 70s and and we grow from there right I mean Reagan was huge into this and we get the just say no campaigns from from Nancy Reagan and um you know that dare comes out of out of a lot this this period but one thing I think that's incredibly helpful and 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 
it's almost like pulling back the curtain on this one is that people love to associate sort of these antiquated and horrible treatments on, on drug use just to the Republican side of our of our politics. And and to be frank, though, you know, Nixon and Reagan were both Republicans. You know, Bush Sr. was very, very terrible when it came to drugs. But Bill Clinton did some pretty horrible things and continued the war on drugs. Like you, you pointed out, and, and it was during Obama's tenure that we got a, a slight fix to that to that problem. But as you pointed out, they're still not equal. And the drug, the war on drugs continued under under Obama. So we tend to think of more of accepting drug use and, and being more progressive on this as a liberal issue, and yet the data would show that yeah, it's better amongst liberals, but we're, we still don't have real positive change coming during these liberal presidents. Right. Yeah. I, and I think actually that's probably more of a more recent phenomenon. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, the drug war was a bipartisan effort. Um, you know, Bill, as you mentioned, President Clinton, he uh, signed into law some of the harshest penalties against uh, drugs and, and not only in the criminal system but also blending into the civil system the education system so you know it, it, it both sides were supporting the drug war and this tough on crime mentality that we needed to be as harsh as possible on any sort of violation getting into recent politics yeah it may be that people considered on the left might be more generally supportive of uh, progressive drug policy but there is a you know sizable contingent of people on the right that also support it as well. They might support it for different reasons, but there I would say now there is a growing coalition of bipartisan support for drug policy reform. What I think is really fascinating about our bipartisan system is that we often tend to think of it as a as a straight line, a spectrum in that way. And in reality, and I say this as a guy who, who spent a long time working in politics, it's more of a circle. And you've got people some of the fiercest defenders of, of drug law, of, of progressive drug ideas are libertarians on the far right who are so conservative on this, they're almost back to, to the left. And you, you get some of the most fascinating uh, writing on, on, on progressive drug ideas out of the Cato Institute, mm -hmm. which is a, a incredibly libertarian uh, think tank. So it, it, it is an issue that kind of makes some strange bedfellows in, in ways that, you know, you've got these, and, and mostly for them, it's because they believe in individual liberty and they, they, they don't see a reason for criminalizing this and, and all that. But I, I love that you did point out that it, it is becoming a more bipartisan system again, in terms of trying to make positive steps. And I think a lot of that is you know, allow me to, to pamper you off here for a minute, but for, for allowing people to have the wool pulled back from their eyes and see the reality of the situation, which is we haven't solved a drug crisis ever. We, uh, the, the use and um, uh, issues around misuse have continued to climb at a rate that was happening, if not more so than before the, and during the war on drugs. So it's done nothing. And it, all it has done is criminalize uh, generations of mostly black and brown Americans. So talk a little bit about that work in terms of how we got here to, to where we are now in terms of uh, modern day recognition of progressive drug ideas, but also then what's that, what, at least for DPA, what's the next step in terms of, all right, we're here, but we, this, is, this is where we're really working to get to. Right. Uh, so DPA is actually coming up on our 20th anniversary. So for 20 years, we've been having these conversations about drug policy and you can beget, you can bet when we started, 
it was a lot different than it is today. I think the original, when this started 20 years ago, people couldn't even talk about the subject. It was essentially everyone had bought in hook, line, and sinker to the drug war, and those who spoke out against it were ostracized. So part of the work of this has been we need to look at the research. We need to talk about, we need to think before we enact these policies, before we continue these policies. And that work continues till today. And again, I think that is, again, highlights the reason why people sharing their stories is so important. Um, putting a personal face, a, a person's face on how these policies are actually impacting people. But over the past 20 years, you know, there's been a lot that has happened. Uh, medical marijuana laws started passing in the, in the 90s those eventually turned into legalization uh, for all adult use. There are several states that have that now and more that, more that are gonna be voting on that in November. Uh, we uh, didn't have any syringe exchange programs. Now those exist uh, in several places across the country. We didn't have any systems for distributing naloxone. And now the top levels of government are publishing papers almost every week saying that we need more naloxone in the hands of people who use drugs and in, with first responders. Um, so there's been, a, there's been a lot of progress despite the fact that we need to be much further along than we are. So looking forward, um, as I mentioned earlier, this November, Oregon is gonna be voting for the first time on whether to decriminalize simple possession of all drugs. Um, G DPA is heavily involved in that effort, and we are going to be involved in other decriminalization efforts across the country. We are also going to be working heavily on law enforcement reform, getting rid of no-knock warrants, getting rid of uh, changing excessive force standards, uh, making sure that uh, you know we have alternative systems. We don't need to be sending law enforcement to respond to mental health and substance use calls. We need health professionals in those situations. So we need alternative models of, of responding to those situations. Um, and also, you know, we're going to continue our work on, on the harm reduction stuff. So more syringe exchange, more naloxone, getting safe consumption sites up and running. And we really need to be starting the conversation on safe supply. People, some people are going to continue to use drugs. They shouldn't have to use drugs so that they don't know what's in them and are going to expose them to overdose death risk. So um, those, are, those are the top priorities for us in the next coming years. Um, of course, we have other work as well, but those are ones we are really gonna be pushing. And those are all awesome. I, I really applaud you all for, for focusing on those. I think that the, the one that's really interesting to me is the law enforcement reform because, it, so put this all in perspective, as a, as a speaker, I was actually invited right before this call to, to come speak to a, uh, I, I get probably every three months invited to this training group of, of up and coming officers in where I live. And uh, I said, no, because I said my attending this would say that I believe that police can be part of the solution around issues of mental health and substance misuse. I do not believe that. I believe that, and I, I said, you can call it to fund the police, call it whatever you want. We need other solutions. Police should not be sent to you know deal with people struggling with a mental health issue. That's That just doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think that, that when you lay it out that way, it's a lot easier for people to understand. But then when you say, and we need to think outside the box, it's hard for people to get there. On that note, I think it's 
one thing a lot of people don't understand is the difference in the positives and negatives between decriminalizing and legalization. Mm -hmm. I think that's an incredibly important specification and one that a lot of people don't recognize. So can you talk a little bit about what the difference is and why it's favored in some places and other places it's, you know, the other one's favored. Uh, So decriminalization refers to the removal of criminal penalties. Typically when people talk about this, they're really only talking about simple drug possession. Um, So people who have small quantities of drugs uh, would no longer face criminal prosecution. We also want to extend that definition to apply to civil, what are civil, they don't call them penalties, but you know, they're essentially penalties. <laughs> Stuff like people getting evicted, uh, you know, not being able to get a job or being fired for having a positive drug test or something like that. So we, we would like to include that in the conversation of decriminalization. Um, but it still, re- it still would remain probably technically illegal to possess drugs, but instead of a criminal prosecution and facing jail, you would get like a civil fine or a referral to uh, a health assessment um, to, to determine if you would like to any receive any health services. Decrim should also be accompanied with a huge investment in health services to make sure that people can actually access those resources. Legalization refers to making it legal to possess um, and having a, a system in place for the actual legal uh, to obtain it legally and to sell it legally. Um, so that um, that's what we're seeing with the adult recreational marijuana uh, legalization initiatives is um, the state is actually sanctioning a system where people can get licenses to sell marijuana and people can legally go to a store to buy marijuana. Under decrim, that would not exist. Uh, you would still actually have to use illegal means to purchase the drugs. You wouldn't know what's in it. And so there are... There are uh, major differences between the two, and and you know some people prefer the decrim because they still they still hang on to this you know that drug selling is bad and we shouldn't promote it I guess um, by making it through a regulatory system, whereas legalization says we need to address all of the harms, um, including the fact that harms are produced when you require an illegal market to be the one selling the drugs. Would you say that that one of the reasons that there's been more pushes around decriminalization um, is because it's an easier lift? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an easier lift. It, I think it's easier for um, sort of the lay populations to understand. Um, and, but again, you know, going back to the stigma, there's stigma against people who use drugs, and then the stigma against people who sell drugs, which oftentimes are same people, but not necessarily. But the people people who sell drugs, people just uh, aren't quite there yet to wrap their head around that, that they should not be punished for, the, for what they are doing. And they don't quite understand that by creating this illegal system where people need to obtain the drugs, we are actually creating more harm um, by not knowing what's in the drugs, um, contaminating drugs, that sort of thing, creating, uh, you know, turf wars that um and all that stuff that comes from illicit markets um so yes i think people are more ready to digest the concept of decriminalization um but i also think that it is or should be part of our trajectory towards discussing regulatory and legalization of drugs 
that was gonna be my next question. Is it, and I guess that this is a bigger picture question, but how often or what percentage of the time is decriminalizing actually the first step or, or the next step towards uh, total legalization? Or, or do we see a lot of situations where people decriminalize and they throw up their hands and say, all right, we've done enough. We're, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna go any farther than this. Well, I mean, I think if you, so no, no country has actually legalized all drugs, but if you look at the example of marijuana in the United States, a lot of jurisdictions started with decriminalizing marijuana first or medical marijuana first. And then eventually they got to legalization. So I think if you look at that, that people want to move step by step. They're not ready for that wholesale change right at the beginning. And I think that could serve as a um, you know, model as we're talking about these other drugs. As we've mentioned before, we would like to see progress more quickly. Um, and and don't get me wrong, decriminalization will be an incredibly huge step forward for drug policy, but it's not the end. So you you sort of transitioned beautifully into my next question, which was going to be you know about the the uh, movement of medical marijuana and cannabis research. So we are stuck in this catch twenty two uh, from the national government, not from states, but well, some states are looking at the federal government, so I guess that that ties in, but. They, they're sort of saying, we're not going to be okay with this because we haven't seen the research. And also, we're not going to allow for the research because we're not okay with this, right? It, it's a sort of chicken or the egg situation. And that's why, personally, as a person, an independent who typically votes Democrat, it was so demoralizing to hear that, that Biden, Biden was just flat out, nope, not going to legalize you know, marijuana, whatever. So how do we get out of this sort of uh, round robin of we can't move forward without research and we can't get any research without moving forward so what, what do we do yeah i mean uh it's a great question so some people are stuck but i think we need to look at the examples that other jurisdictions are setting um, there's been a lot of movement on, on marijuana legalization in the past just decade um, so you know i think we need to look at that progress it's a wave that has started and will only continue to grow um, for you know part of it is on us to make sure that we are supporting and voting for the people who stand for our drug policy ideals it's it I, it's disappointing but not entirely surprising um that a candidate who says one thing you know was involved in the harsh 1990s drug policies is not all the way with us on progressive drug policies today but it's not where he was in the 90s which is a positive step um, so this needs to continue to move forward. Um, we are working with, uh, you know, to make sure that that research can be done uh, more efficiently and that the federal government isn't going to uh, intervene with states who have chosen to, a different path forward on marijuana. Yeah, I think you, you touched on something that is, isn't talked a lot about because people love to, to harp on a lot of Biden's older stuff, but good Lord, was he awful on drugs back in the, the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s. I mean, some of the things he said on drugs would, I mean, knock you on your heels that were just already known to be antiquated that he was still right. pushing in, in that time. So, and, and was very, you know, supportive of Clinton's uh, moves in, in the 90s as well. Um, you and I could talk about this for hours, I'm sure. 
let's get into the final couple of questions because sure. I, I don't want to keep you all, all day. Number one is uh, I always ask my guests at, because this is a show about mental health and substance misuse and all that kind of stuff. What are your self-care habits? What are you doing to kind of, you know, help yourself unwind and take oh. a moment? That's number one. And, <laughs> yeah, right. Tough question. And uh, number two, and you've touched on this a little bit, but you such a uh, wealth of knowledge. I'd love for you to go deeper on this one is who should we be reading? Who should we be following? You know, besides, DPA. What are some organizations that we we need to be caring about? You know, you you in this world of of internet, literally at our fingertips, we have no excuse not to find information other than it's hard to find at times. So, shout out some places we should be looking, people we should be following, books we should be reading. That great. Kind of thing. Um, okay, so what do I do for self care? Uh, well, I have three children under the age of five, so it's it's a little rough these days, especially with school closed. But uh, I always try to make sure um, that I have time just to do some breathing. Um, I step out on the patio and I do, you know, I, I, I practice karate. So I step out there and I do like a, a breathing kata um, just to make sure that I'm getting breath. Um, and I also try to stretch every day. So those would be the top for me. And then in terms of who um, the listeners should be following and, and reading, organizations, um, some national ones, ACLU is great harm reduction coalition of course us drug policy alliance um, but then i would also recommend searching in your area for local policy advocacy organizations or service providers that you can support there are a lot of great harm reduction or organizations or like drug user union type organizations uh, vocal new york is a really great one chicago recovery alliance so i would definitely recommend searching in your area and then in terms of what to read, if you haven't read The New Jim Crow, it's a must for drug policy folks. One of my favorite drug policy books is called The Biology of Desire by Mark Lewis. It really helped me change how I think about addiction. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, oh, man, I just I don't even know where to begin? Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the shout out from Aaron and the policy update from Kellen from the Drug Policy Alliance. I found that incredibly fascinating. And as the show is titled, <laughs> Reasons for Hope. You know, it, it is hard sometimes, and I'm so guilty of this, uh, to see how bad things are and how slow progress is and want to keep fighting. And that's a good thing. But what isn't is when I fail to take a second to go, you know what? At least things aren't as bad as they used to be, you know? And both of those things can be true. You can keep fighting for progress to to be quicker because the 
relying on the pace of progress has never gotten us anywhere. And, and we're seeing that, you know, as Kellen and I talked about, yeah, Joe Biden is not a, a <laughs> he is very little reasons for hope when it comes to progress on these issues, but at least it's not as bad as it was. So both of those things can be true. That means that we got to keep pushing. As Kellen said, we got to keep supporting people who have progressive ideas around drugs and substance misuse and the policies that we hold dear. I really appreciated his candor. He was very honest in our interview. You know, it would have been really easy for him, I think, to stick to the sort of the party line and just be like, things are getting better. But that's also not what Drug Policy Alliance does. And that's one of the reasons I love them is that they are not partisan in the sense that they're not just going to pat the Democrats on the back for being slightly better than Republicans. They're going to say, no, we need this to be better. You know, just giving this lip service isn't enough. And since Kellen and I chatted, Drug Policy Alliance did put out uh, or they pushed for what they called the Moore Act, and you can go search for that. And it was taken up on the House floor, or it's in the process or something. You know, things are wonky right now with COVID and all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of talk since we spoke about progressive marijuana and, and cannabis research, and a lot of things uh, have come up since then. So I almost, I almost wish that I, I could get Kellen back to sort of be like, all right, everything since we spoke. But a huge thank you to Kellen from the Drug Policy Alliance, and a huge thank you just to the Drug Policy Alliance, period, for allowing him to come on and for the work he, you know, the, the entire organization is doing. And a shout out to Aaron for being incredibly heartfelt and honest and open, and, you know, it would have been very easy for her not to, to do that. So thank you to her. All right, it is time for the cards. Going to have something fun with these in the coming weeks, but right now, just Regular old Jay, mixing up the cards. We're using the 54 Ways to Ease the Anxious Mind pack this week. Thanks to Blurt, as always, for the product. Oh, this is a great one. This is something that I actually did, uh, so I, I like this a lot. Take your shoes and socks off and walk barefoot on the grass slash sand slash carpets. I did that. I am in Cincinnati, Ohio, visiting family. And my parents have a very large backyard. And I took my shoes off and sort of relived my childhood for a minute, just running around without my shoes on in their backyard. It was very nice. So definitely do that. Uh, that's a great one. Thank you, Blurt. This week's Good Egg. It's in the show notes. It's a blog post by a guy I had the great privilege of chatting with named Joe Feldman, who is a board member for the Kennedy Forum in, in Illinois. It's called 10 Steps to Securing Insurance Coverage for Mental Health Care. Mental health and physical health parity is the law of the land. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that until not long ago. And it is the law of the land. Your insurance is supposed to cover mental health the same way they cover physical health. Unfortunately, they don't. They it just flat out like like there's no sort of well they can't no they just don't and, and that law has never been held true. In fact, that is something that both sides have failed. It, it is one of those things that, that this is not a um this is not a partisan issue. Both sides have failed to hold insurances 
accountable for this law, this parody law. There is a lot of work being done trying to force insurances to just do what they are legally obligated to do. That being said, in the meantime, there are a lot of things we can all do to protect ourselves against insurance companies trying to rip us off uh, and screw us over. This blog post is helpful for that. It is 10 things that you can do if your loved one or yourself is going to be needing some sort of mental health care, or if, if you just want um, you know, to, to find a therapist. I mean, there's a lot of really good info on here. So check it out. It's in the show notes. Thank you to Joe Feldman for taking the time to chat with me and educate me about this uh, and for writing this post. That's it. That's all I've got today. Thank you all for sticking around, for listening to episode 32. Uh, a lot of cool things coming down the pipe for, for this podcast, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, show your empathy, be vulnerable, spread your love, and choose your struggle.